Welcome to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. My name is Jenna, and in this series, I'll be speaking to plastic surgery residents and giving you an inside look at what it's like to train at their institution. We'll discuss the logistics, the leadership, and the lifestyle of a plastics resident at their program. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Hu, who's a third-year resident at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Michael is originally from Orange County, California. He completed college at the University of California, Los Angeles, and medical school at New York Medical College. He's interested in craniofacial surgery and microsurgery. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jenna. Thanks for having me. So it'd be great if you could get started with a big picture overview about your program. Sure. So our program is a, actually is one of the first uh, five-year competency-based programs which means that there is a potential to graduate in five years for our integrated residents. We also have an independent track built into our program as well. So we offer both an integrated and independent uh, track. Again, the integrated track is one of the first five-year, potentially five-year competency programs, which means a program can be five, six, or even seven years in length, depending on your competency level. And we have an independent track that's uh, three years in length. We have three integrated residents that we accept every year, as well as two independent residents that come in after finishing one of the other surgical specialties. And they begin as an independent uh, fourth-year resident, essentially. How long has Pitt had that competency-based model? So I am the first class that is eligible for the competency-based model. So it's just uh, three years old. How has it changed the way you're either evaluated or how your rotations work, things like that? I think we were actually one of the programs to spearhead this competency-based program. So we've seen a lot of modifications to the program through the years leading up to the competency-based program. So we start plastic surgery very early compared to other programs. And essentially, our last year, our sixth year, or our chief year, is designed in such a way that you are kind of more refining your skills and not the chief of any of the major services. You actually do that during your fifth year. And so because of that, it it actually makes it possible for someone who's deemed um, competent enough to graduate after their fifth year to graduate the program and not be detrimental to the program by having one less resident in the in the sixth year. And can you give me kind of the breakdown of the plastics exposure you get over the first three years? As a first year, as an intern, we spend about three months uh, of the year doing plastic surgery. One month is on our reconstructive surgery rotation as the intern. And we actually have two months as a, a knife float resident. And so as a intern, we're spending a significant amount of time taking call, essentially taking primary call for a number of our hospitals. And that allows us to really quickly learn how to take care of plastic surgery emergencies overnight. And I think it's one of the strong points of our program. During our second year, we spend about seven months of the second year doing plastic surgery. We spend two more months our second year in that night float rotation where we again take primary cough for our major call pool covering several hospitals. 
And so, and we spent four months on our, our major uh, reconstructive surgery service. So it gets you really familiar with plastic surgery very early on. And I'd say um, definitely by the end of your second year, you feel very comfortable taking care of any plastic surgery emergency. And how about the third year? So our third year is 100% plastic surgery. It's split up into a third of the year we're spending doing breast reconstruction. A third of the year we're at the VA doing all sorts of things, including a lot of hand surgery. And then we spend a third of the year at our children's hospital doing pediatric craniofacial plastic surgery. And what are some of the different sites you work at? We work through the UPMC, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center system, and there's a number of hospitals uh, in our region that we work at through that system, but we also work at a children's hospital, uh, Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. We have a VA that we work at as well. We spend quite a bit of time on um, other rotations earlier on. For example, we have a elective hand, orthopedic hand surgery rotation as well. So we learn some uh, bread and butter hand surgery from the orthopedic surgeons, and we have elective time in our chief year as well. Is that elective time more so within the UPMC system, or is that an opportunity there to go elsewhere? Yeah, actually, I probably think most of our residents, it seems like, spends that elective time to go elsewhere. So I know in the past, our residents have gone to work with private practice plastic surgeons throughout the country. Some have gone to different craniofacial surgery programs throughout the country. We've had someone go to um, Taiwan, Chenggeng, for uh, microsurgery. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to do what you would like, and it's, it's a great experience. Are there any other opportunities for any global trips, whether they're shorter term, longer term, or global research opportunities? I know that others have gone to Taiwan, for example, for a shorter amount of time. One of our chiefs last year spent some time in Chenggeng as well, and he also went to Japan at the same time. So I know it's definitely possible. I know one of our professor emeritus, he does some rural surgery work over in Oregon, in a small town in Oregon, and I know that's an opportunity to go work with him as well. I don't know if anyone recently has spent the time globally, like on an international mission trip, but I am pretty sure it's possible. And can you tell me a bit about the cosmetic exposure throughout your training? So our dedicated cosmetic rotations are in our, I believe it's our fifth and sixth year of our program, where we spend uh, two months each year working with cosmetic surgeons throughout Pittsburgh as well as staffing a resident-run clinic that allows uh, residents to operate a chief and, I guess, a senior resident together on a, on a case. We also spend quite a bit of time doing body contouring with our, with our chairman, Dr. Peter Rubin. And actually, we got a lot of experience during the breast reconstruction surgery rotation, which I'm on now, so I get to work with Dr. Rubin. I operate with him almost two times a week, so on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Is the chief cosmetic clinic just during the month or two that you're on that rotation, or is it something that continues throughout the year? I know of residents who have booked patients during their time on the cosmetic surgery rotation, and 
just by moving on to another rotation, they've taken time to do those cases because they've booked them. So I know that's a possibility. But I think the majority of the time you're operating during your aesthetic surgery rotation. What is your experience with gender affirmation surgery like? So we have um, quite a bit of gender affirmation surgery for top surgery. Unfortunately, we don't have too much bottom surgery at the time. So on our breast reconstruction surgery service, uh, which again, I'm on now, we do quite a bit of, of top surgery. I believe we are looking to hire someone to do bottom surgery as well. So that should be coming soon. But uh, oddly enough, despite that, we've uh, graduated a lot of people from our program who have actually gone on to, to be leaders in uh, gender affirmation surgery, top and bottom surgery. So I think if that's of interest, it's definitely uh, possible. And is moonlighting possible at your program? A lot of our chiefs do a lot of moonlighting. That's when they have quite a bit of extra time to take call because actually during our chief year, you do not take any primary call. So by the time uh, you're sixth year, you are not taking any primary call, just backup call. And again, that's what allows this competency-based program to potentially work is that when you're when you're a six year, you don't have any call responsibility. So if you again, if you are deemed competent, I think it is actually possible to graduate early. Since we're already talking about call, can you tell me a little bit about what call is like in the earlier years? So we have three call pools in our program. Our main call pools, we call it the Oakland call pool, which is a, a area of Pittsburgh called Oakland. There are about five hospitals in that call pool. And it's, it's very busy. It's a tertiary center. And so we get everything from, I guess it would be Western Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and sometimes Northern Maryland, as well as parts of Ohio transferred in. So it's a very busy call, a lot of replants and facial trauma, hand trauma. And again, we start taking that call during our first and second year, uh, two months, our first year, two months, our second year. Then we have a children's call pool, which covers the children's hospital, and that's covered by the third and the fourth year residents. And then we have another call pool that covers another level one trauma center, uh, UPMC Mercy, as well as the Allegheny General Hospital, which is another private hospital in our region that call is taken during our fourth and fifth year. And that's kind of a graduated level call. Sometimes you have a junior resident in-house that's running things by you. So you're serving more as a, a, a senior role in that call pool. Is it home call or in-house? I guess it's kind of both. You're a night float, so you're you know expected to be on from a certain time at night. But due to the nature of, call it, of covering several hospitals, you're driving around. And if it's quiet, you can go home and have dinner. I've done that. But sometimes it's busy and you're kind of taking consults throughout the night. So it just depends, but it is a home call in, in the case that if you're not covering, you don't happen to be covering a hand call or a face call that night, you know, it could be a very quiet call and you're absolutely welcome to be at home. Can you tell me a bit about the research expectations at your program? We have quite a bit of research at our program. Our requirements are to participate in one research scholarly activity a year. Um, we also work on a QI project that I believe, this is a little bit newer, I believe it will also be a yearly endeavor as well. And that's 
all that is required. However, there are residents who take one or even two years off for research. And we have, you know, many residents who, you know, are able to publish quite a number of papers every year. So um, there's pretty much the sky's the limit in terms of research and opportunities. And what kind of support is available when you're ready to present your research? So typically your PI who's working on the project will support your, your research. For example, I've had a project with the craniofacial group and, you know, they funded a trip to the International Society of Craniofacial Plastic Surgery, which last year was in Paris. So I was able to take time to go to Paris with the, the craniofacial team and present my work. So a lot of great opportunities. In addition, we have our own educational stipend. I believe it comes to about 1500 a year, and that can be used for anything. It can be used for loops, books, or really anything. Some people use it to get their Pennsylvania medical license so that they can moonlight because Pennsylvania utilizes a training license for, for residents. So essentially, you can use it for anything related to, I guess, plastic surgery. What area of plastic surgery do you feel like residents come out with the strongest experience in? I think we are very well trained across the board. There are so many of our residents go on to be general reconstructive surgeons that do everything from cosmetic to, you know, maxillofacial trauma to some hand surgery. So I think you are very well trained across the board coming out of our program. I think in particular, we get a robust experience in body contouring and uh, breast surgery, you know, general reconstructive surgery. I think we are probably one of the few programs in the country that gets very good exposure to head and neck microsurgery, which seems to be more rare now nowadays with um, some of the ENT facial plastic surgeons doing a lot of the cases. But at Pitt Plastic Surgery, that is still run by the plastic surgery program. And how would you improve your program? You know, in all honesty, there's not too much... I think that I would want to improve. I think we don't get as much gender affirmation bottom surgery. So that's something that I hope we can get more exposure to. And again, if you have interest in that, we've graduated actually quite a number of people who have gone on to have a gender affirmation surgery practice, and they spent their elective time pursuing um, that. And then the other thing is, I think uh, we are just starting to get more experience with uh, lymphatic surgery. And one of our attendings recently went to Taiwan to really hone her skills in that. And I think she's just starting up uh, her practice. And so over the next few years, we should get uh, quite more, a lot more experience in that. And are there any other cool perks about your program you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean... What made me really interested in this program is I think um, it's a top academic program uh, with ample research opportunity. A lot of leaders in the field are training you, but it's a very family-oriented program. It's very friendly. I think all the attendings are really, they focus on wanting to teach you. And so I think it's a great program overall. And I think that's the biggest reason why I've enjoyed it. Some perks, we do get, you know, meal coupons like other places. We get the stipend that can be used for anything. And we typically get like jackets and things like that. People get loops with their with their money. And so 
I think, uh, you know, we have all the, all the perks that those programs have. And now to go a little bit more into that faculty that you mentioned, can you tell me a bit more about your chief and your PD? So we are a department of plastic surgery, so we have a chair. It's Dr. Peter Rubin. And I mean, he's in a internationally known for body contouring, but as well, uh, I, I've heard of him before I came here from his research in adipose-derived stem cells. So I did a lot of research in stem cell biology, and I've read a lot of papers by Dr. Rubin and uh, Dr. Casey Mara, who's a PhD in our uh, department as well. He's, again, he's well known for body contouring. And the great, greatest thing about him is I'm actually working with him a lot right now. And he's, you know, he's a chair. He's internationally known. He will be the next, I think, ASPS president. And the ASPS president who will be coming up actually just in the next few days is uh, Dr. Joe Losey, who was our former program director, but now is kind of the vice chair of our department. So we have two pit plastic surgeons faculty who are going to be leading ASPS for the next two years. Our program director is uh, Dr. Vu Nguyen, and he is a breast reconstructive surgeon. He also does a lot of gender top surgery as well, and he serves on the wellness committee of uh, University of Pittsburgh. And so it's, uh, I have to say, it's really nice to have a program director that sits on the wellness committee because he completely understands uh, the importance of wellness. We were just talking to medical students the other day. It's nice of him to point out that, you know, surgery in general, plastic surgery as well, but surgery in general is kind of behind on the wellness aspect. And just the fact that he's aware of that and he tries to change that, I think um, that speaks uh, volumes to our program and our leadership. And um, we're privileged to have a program director that really cares about that and make sure that, you know, we abide by the work hour restrictions and that we are mentally and physically well during our training. Can you tell me about a time when you brought up an issue either to the chair or the PD and how they responded? I think that's a great question because one of the things I've noticed about this program is that uh, we're constantly changing. That's a good thing. For example, I think the fact that we are pursuing this competency-based program, you know, this is new. It's three years old. You know, no one knows if it will work. No one knows if any of us will graduate early or if it's a good system, but just the fact that our program is constantly evolving and trying to improve training is um, something that's really good. And I think it's, it's great. And I know that just in my short time here, in the three years I've been here, whenever there's an issue on a rotation or an issue that's brought up, there are changes that are instantly made. And so we've had structural changes to our program several times since I've been here, just in terms of the call pool and the, you know, amount of call, the rotations, how they're structured. For example, you know, we are a big hospital system. We cover multiple hospitals and on certain rotations, you have patients at different hospitals. And uh, some of the residents found it difficult in the morning to round at three different hospitals prior to surgery. And so now we've kind of evolved our system into a, a turf system. So the residents at a certain hospital will round on all the patients at that hospital. And I think it's working great so far, but if it doesn't, I think 
you know, we'll evaluate it at the end of this year and we'll try to improve it and make it better. And so again, we're constantly working on issues and trying to make them better. And I think that's a highlight of our program. Do you foresee any upcoming changes in faculty? I don't think there are any major changes. I know we're, again, trying to heavily recruit someone who will focus on gender bottom surgery. But but again, not too many changes that I know of. And maybe there are some that the faculty know, but the residents aren't aware of. And now I'd like to hear more about the relationships among the residents. I have to say, I think I'm very impressed by the camaraderie among the residents here. I've worked intimately with other programs throughout the country prior to starting plastic surgery, and I have not seen camaraderie as good. I think we have a very diverse group of residents, those who are married with children, those who are married or in serious relationships, and those who are single. And so naturally, you'll find different groups of people, those who are who enjoy physical activity, etc. And so there are definitely different groups, but um, people get along, people like to do activities together. Pre-COVID, there were a number of activities going on. A lot of those who like to cycle were cycling together at the local gym. We have get-togethers related to food. One of our former residents put together an Asian food cuisine group, and so we would try different Asian restaurants. We unsuccessfully tried a vegan cuisine. I think a few residents tried it, and then they gave up. There are a lot of things going on. Like what I always say, there's more going on than you have time for. So generally, you just do what you like doing during your free time. For those who are married with kids, you know, that's pretty much takes up their free time. And do most residents own or rent in Pittsburgh? I would say that's about or very close to 50-50. The great thing about Pittsburgh is it's an awesome city. It has everything you need, and it's a very manageable city. It's not, traffic is not chaotic. The city is small. You can get everywhere. But it's not Los Angeles or New York or San Francisco. So the, the housing market is on the rise, but it's affordable. So I would say 50% of the residents own and uh, the others uh, rent. Is there a similar split for living in houses versus apartments, or does that shift more one way or the other? I would say most people who own, own a house. I only know of one resident who owns a condo, and then the rest pretty much live in apartments. I don't know of anyone who rents a house. I believe there has been in the past. They've rented a house with other residents in other programs. I think one of our residents did that, and then he ended up buying his own house. In relation to where the hospitals are, where do people usually choose to live? You know, people live all over. I live probably, so without traffic, you know, like say in the middle of the night, I could be at most of our hospitals in, in 10 minutes. Again, the traffic isn't bad. If it's during the worst time, that 10 minutes may take 15 or 20 minutes to some locations. But there are people who live throughout the, the city. There are, I guess, little boroughs or regions. I don't know what they're called in Pittsburgh yet. But um, there are some popular areas, some trendy hipster areas like Lawrenceville, I think, or the Strip District. I live in Shadyside, which uh, I think is probably more of a older community. But there are a lot of cool places to live, and there are a lot of uh, cool parts of Pittsburgh, so it's a great city. What are some of the things you have found that you like to do in Pittsburgh? 
I like to spend my free time doing things that are physically active. So I'm a big runner, so I pretty much just run around the city. We have a number of residents who are really into biking, who bike a lot. One of my co-residents, actually, I think she biked like 100 miles a few weeks ago. For me, I just like to run. So whenever I have free time, I, I do a lot of running. I like to go out to eat and try different restaurants. I recently became vegan about a year ago, so I like trying different vegan restaurants. And surprisingly, we have quite a few vegan restaurants in Pittsburgh, and so that's really great. There are a lot of people who like to go out to bars, and again, this was pre-COVID, I think um, since COVID, not as much going out. There's still a lot to do, and I think whatever you're into, Pittsburgh has it. It's, again, it's manageable. If I were a resident living in New York City, I think it would be a bit overwhelming and costly as well. So I think, uh, again, it's a great place. And is it necessary to have a car? It is. I think... Every resident has had a car. I know of one fellow who had a bike last year, and um, I think he kind of got made fun of a lot for it, but we still loved him and we gave him rides a lot. Uh, But yeah, I think you need a car. There's not much traffic. Uh, We do cover a lot of hospitals. So as a resident, you know, you need to get to different hospitals. So you do have to have a car. Do you have fellows in addition to independent residents? We do. Yeah, so we have an aesthetic body contouring fellow um, who really learns from Dr. Rubin and Dr. Gusanoff, who are body contouring experts. We have a microsurgery fellow who does a lot of head and neck reconstruction with Dr. Solari, as well as some of the um, ENT facial plastic surgeons and breast reconstruction from our, our breast team, like Dr. Nguyen, Dr. Gimbal. Dr. De La Cruz, to name a few. And then we have Hand Surgery Fellowship. And they work with Dr. Spies and Dr. Unadkat, as well as a lot of the orthopedic hand surgeons in our program as well. And so the Hand Surgery Fellowship consists of, I believe there are six or seven orthopedic hand fellows and one dedicated plastic surgery hand fellow. And how does having both the independent residents and the fellows impact your training? I think it's great. We were actually just talking about this a few weeks ago, and our program director said he really enjoys the cross-pollination, is how he uh, described it, between the independent and the integrated residents. Obviously, the uh, independent residents are so well-trained. You know, they general surgeons really learn how to take care of really sick patients. And I think um, their critical care knowledge is very good. And then the integrated program, again, we start plastic surgery so early that by the time we're in our fourth year, it's almost unfair how much more plastic surgery knowledge we have than the independent residents. But we learn from each other, and I think it's definitely a benefit to have both tracks in our program. So that's pretty much everything I wanted to talk about today. Any final thoughts either on your program or on the process of choosing a residency in general? Well, I guess this is, you know, my my thoughts are very subjective. When I was applying, I wanted to be at a larger academic program that had the opportunity to 
first of all, to, to be involved in some, some great research, to get well-trained, and to come from a, a program with a good reputation. And there's definitely, you know, a lot of programs that fit that criteria. But in addition, I wanted to be in a program where it was a friendly environment and where the attendings really wanted to train you. The number one goal of plastic surgery residency, we shouldn't forget, is to become a good and competent plastic surgeon. I think all the attendings want that. And so that's the number one priority. But in addition, our program has so many resources to help you really do whatever you want. And I think that's another thing that they really value. I know a lot of other programs look down upon you, say if you're interested in aesthetic surgery or, you know, something that may be controversial, maybe like a gender affirmation surgery even. But our program will support you in whatever you want to do. And I think that's really important. I think that's really great, to be honest. So whether it's reconstructive surgery, fellowship, private practice, whatever, aesthetic surgery, all the faculty will support you and help you get to where you want to be. And do you have a single best piece of advice you would give to applicants this year? I think the match is a very subjective thing. So I think you really have to know yourself and what you want and really think about it and don't let other people tell you otherwise. I think, you know, I I read a stat recently that said the number one deciding factor on programs is location. And if that's the case, if you want to be in a certain area because of family, friends, significant other, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's nothing wrong with ranking a program that may be a smaller program or may not you know, have the reputation of other programs because you want to be um, close to family. If that's what's important to you, I think that's what you should go for. Also, I think, you know, everyone is different. Some people don't care about to be at a big program. Some people would prefer to be at a smaller program. And actually, uh, you know, when I was applying, there was a small program that I really, really liked, and I ranked it near the top of my list, even though Prior to the interview season, I I really wanted to be at an academic program. So I think you just have to go with what your heart tells you and what you are looking for. And I think that's the most important thing. And uh, I think it works out well. What's the perfect program for you may not be the perfect program for someone else. And so uh, it seems like everyone kind of ends up where they're supposed to be or where they want to be. Somehow the match seems to work, in my opinion. If interested, how can prospective applicants find out more about your program? Yeah, so I think on your website, you have uh, some email addresses, right, of um, like our program director and our program administrators. They're also welcome to email me. I think we have a list of our residents on our website. And to be honest, if you're interested and you're scrolling through that website and you see someone who maybe has a similar interest as you, or maybe they went to the same medical school as you, I would encourage future applicants to reach out and send an email. And I I know my co-residents will be more than happy to talk to anyone and help guide them. And how about social media? Yeah, social media is a, a way to reach us as well. We have a Facebook page as well as an Instagram page. The amount of uh, activity there among their social media presence is, is varied, but I think that's another way that's, you know, more popular nowadays than email. 
to reach out to people. And again, reach out and someone will be there to kind of talk to you and help you. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Mike. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for doing this. I think this is a great idea. And I think it fills an unmet need amongst medical students, especially in this this time of COVID where there's a lot of uncertainty. So kudos to you for doing this. And uh, thanks for taking the time to interview me. Thank you for listening to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our show via your favorite podcast service and following us on Instagram and Twitter. For more podcast episodes and residency information, check out our website, doctority.co. That's doctority.co. We love feedback from listeners, so please contact us through the website or through social media with your questions or suggestions. See you next time.